Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. If you were with us last week, you know that we started a new mini-series on the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our future and our present. And if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that we spent the entire Sunday answering the question, what is our future hope? Is the future Christian hope of a disembodied heaven where our souls are at last set free from our bodies to go and meet God in the clouds? Or is it something far more physical? How does the resurrection of Jesus inform and shape our hope, and ultimately, why does it matter? We are continuing the conversation today in what I hope will be an even more practical note, but I want us to start by picking up where we left off last week. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21, Verse 1, at the very end of your Bibles, and we'll pick up there in a moment. For most of you, this will be like the second to last page of Scripture. As we reach the end of the Scriptures, John has a prophetic vision concerning the end of times, or the end of the age, when Jesus returns. And chapter 20 talks about all of the dead being raised, some to judgment and others to glory. And while we never want to ignore or even downplay the reality of judgment, what we see in the scriptures is that God's final judgment against evil is ultimately a really good thing that clears the ground so to speak, for what happens next. And that brings us to chapter 21. This is the end goal of the entire storyline of creation. And some of you may be surprised to find that the story doesn't end with us escaping earth for heaven, but rather with heaven coming down to be united with earth. Physical reality, it turns out, is not to be thrown away, but redeemed. We pick up in Revelation uh, chapter 21, but before we do, I'll ask that you'll join me in a quick prayer. Jesus, as Revelation itself tells us, you are um, the, the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. And you say, hey, blessed is anyone who, who actually trusts me, who actually believes and puts their hope in the words that are written here. And so as we approach something that to many of us can feel so abstract and so distant, as we tackle the topic of life after death and what it means for this life, God, would you, in the power of the Spirit, actually do the work of opening up our hearts and minds to be able to understand the mystery of the age that we live in, and the beauty of the one that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Revelation 21, verse 1. 
Then, John says, post-judgment, I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the, fr- sorry, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea or chaotic darkness in the Hebrew. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, I am making everything new. All of physical reality. And it goes on to describe a garden-like, Eden-like city. A new physical reality. No more death. No more tears. It's not a disembodied heaven. It's better. Alright, so we have that as our future to anticipate. This is the future that the Old Testament people of God had always been anticipating. A new heavens and a new earth that the people of God would be resurrected into. Such that we would have incorruptible physical bodies and experience life on a scale that we can hardly fathom in the midst of our worn out and broken world. And knowing that that is our future hope, it changes things. The Jewish people who held this hope, they lived differently. It was a revolutionary idea. And so right in the midst of their oppression, in the midst of their suffering, they had this hope. And right in the midst of that tension, something else happened. A man named Jesus came along. And after dying for the sins of the world on a Roman cross, his first followers claimed that he didn't stay dead. That in fact, he had been resurrected, not at the end of the age as they would have anticipated, but right in the middle of this age. And the question we want to explore this morning is why does that matter? What difference does the resurrection make? If Jesus had died for our sins and his spirit had departed and ascended to heaven to be with the Father and his body was left in the tomb, if you had death without resurrection, would life be any different? The cross 
is clearly the center of God's heart for humanity. It is the center of our faith. If you erase the cross, you lose everything. But what if you erase the resurrection? What if Jesus had died in our place, setting us free, reconciling us to God, and that was that? Why does it matter that he rose again from the dead and left an empty tomb? And in part, the answer which we tackled last week is that the resurrection of Jesus clarifies and confirms our future Christian hope. It's proof, in a sense, that the worldview of the scriptures is accurate. That one day, God will renew the entire physical universe and the people of God will, in fact, be resurrected into it. It demonstrates that the goal is not to escape physical reality for a a disembodied heaven, but rather to see the joining of heaven and earth that we read about in Revelation. So the resurrection is, is a snapshot, in a sense, of our future hope, that one day God will resurrect us. And in a sense, he will resurrect or renew the entire physical universe. What happened to Jesus on Easter morning will happen to you. And what happened to Jesus' body on Easter morning will happen to the cosmos. Okay? So that was last week, if you remember. But the truly unique aspect of Jesus' resurrection was not just that it pointed to a future age where God would renew all things, but also that in and through the resurrection, God brought that future age to bear on this reality. What we see in Revelation is that post-judgment, God will make all things new in a radical way. But what we see in the resurrection of Jesus is that he's not waiting until the end of the age to get started. His renewal project was actually launched in part right there and right then. The moment that Jesus came walking out of that tomb something shifted. It became clear not just that space, time, and matter would one day be redeemed, but that space, time, and matter had just been regenerated in the body of Jesus, and now perhaps it was going to ripple out from there. And really, we are left with a stunning uh, twofold question. First, knowing that the entire physical world will one day be redeemed, 
How might we begin celebrating that redemption, that healing, that transformation in the present, in anticipation of the end of the age? And the second sort of mirrored related question is if the resurrection of Jesus marked the beginning of the renewal of all things, how might I partner with God in what he's up to in the present? And there are so many directions that we could go, but I want to focus in on just two implications this morning. Two implications of the resurrection of Jesus for life in the here and now. So first, if you're taking notes, is justice. Justice is a massive concept in the scriptures, cover to cover, but the simplest definition that I could come up with is that justice is setting things right again. And so a community of justice is, is a, a biblical community that, that's committed to, to the setting right of all relationships with God, with others, with self, with the rest of creation, such that all of those relationships are becoming well-ordered and flourishing as Yahweh designed and intended. And if we use this as sort of our working definition of justice, then it immediately becomes clear that justice will happen to everything in the universe as it becomes the new heavens and the new earth. And while no group or organization throughout human history has done more for the cause of justice worldwide than followers of Jesus. In recent centuries, the relationship between justice and the church has become complicated. On the one hand, you have schools of thought uh, that focus primarily on this idea of heaven, or sort of the, the heaven-only schools of thought. And they say, hey, if the goal of all of this is heaven, then I'm just passing through. The world is too far gone. Socially, culturally, ecologically, it's ruined. So let's just focus on saving souls for eternity. The gospel sort of gets uh, trimmed down or truncated, if you will, into something that Jesus did for your soul, and the rest doesn't really matter. Justice, or setting things right in this life, doesn't really have a role in the conversation. On the other end of the theological spectrum, you have groups who focus on social justice only. And they basically say, hey, it's all about justice, and it's all about making this world a better world. And sometimes they will even cut out cross and resurrection, because those just seem kind of like silly ideas in the modern age. And instead, they'll use portions of scripture to advance an agenda of renewal and social justice. But it's all about this life. 
And it's still loosely based on Scripture. But it's, it's all about this life and this world. So the Bible gives us the agenda and the ideas, but Jesus isn't really necessary. And then... If you move even further over on the spectrum, you get our current secular culture, which basically says, hey, throw out the Bible and God completely, and let's just seek justice and social reform in the present. This is materialistic, secular thinking, which says, hey, we don't need God or anything from the scriptures. We know best and will set out to make a, a world that's full of justice and equality. And in fact, while we're on the topic, the scriptures might not really help us get there at all. Because after all, I'm pretty sure that they're homophobic and they might be sexist as well. So let's exclude all of those ideas and just pursue social justice on our own. And I'm stereotyping a bit in all of this but it's gonna save us a lot of time this morning, okay? So in essence, one group says, it's all about heaven, chuck the rest, and, and the other groups are saying, no, 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 it's all about this life, who knows what's to come, if anything. But the problem is that all three of these schools of thought fall far short of meaningful change. To hold an escapist mentality and ignore justice in favor of saving souls, well, that doesn't really make uh, for a just world in the present that's being renewed. It doesn't really make for a powerful witness of who Jesus is. But surprisingly, if you only focus on justice and renewal in the present, and you leave out the cross and the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, then you are equally stuck. And you might see some level of success in improving living conditions or starting a temporary movement in the right direction. But without resurrection and without future hope, you lose both the vision for change and the motivation to see it through. In short, you might be able to improve living conditions for a group of people or create more equality in the workplace, but the world will still be left trembling in the dark. And as we look back over the last century, we can clearly see that the social gospel, as it's called, has not produced what it promised. They are still, to this day, as much as ever, trying to build the kingdom of God without God. They're building the kingdom without the king. Mere human attempts at improving our world using biblical principles without biblical hope 
have proven hugely disappointing. The irony of the escapist mentality is that they tend to trash or ignore the very people and places that God so longs to restore right here and right now. But the irony of the more secular perspectives and mentalities is that they seek to restore those people and places with no view of God. And in doing so, there's a sense in which they cut their own legs out from under them. They reject the escapist mentality. They say, no, 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 this all about heaven thing, that's not for us. But they reject the scriptures along with it. And so they're left with an agenda for social change, but they don't realize that they're throwing out the best chance they have at successful change. By denying God's actions in history, they erode the very foundation that they were intended to build on. But, when you approach the topic of justice through the lens of resurrection, everything begins to change. What we see is that one day, God will set everything right. And that God has brought that future, that putting the world to rights future, into the present in Jesus of Nazareth. And he wants to see that future implicated more and more in the present age. And this not only gives us the vision and motivation to do something about our present age, but in the same breath, we are presented with the very real possibility that, that our works of love and justice and restoration in this age will somehow echo into the next. If this world is to be renewed, then perhaps what we do here is not wasted. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians, which we read last week, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Did anyone notice that from last week's passage? You get one of the most extensive passages in all of Scripture talking about resurrection and future hope and your future body and this new heavens and the new earth. And it, the passage ends by saying, therefore, in light of all this stuff that we've been talking about, in light of your future hope, therefore, your labor in the Lord in this life, in the here and now, is not in vain. Because God is not going to destroy this world, but renew it. And while we can hardly fathom the difference between this world and the next, we can also move forward with some sense in, in the mysterious continuity that will exist between this age and 
the next. And this becomes our fuel for justice or for setting things right. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. All of it matters. How do you know? Because if the resurrection is true, then so is the renewal of all things. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, he says it this way. He says, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to fall off a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's about to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-filled teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's cre creation of this wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of the Spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. And he goes on to say, basically, I have no idea how this is going to happen. But it's true. There's some how can, we, how can we understand and describe and capture the curious continuity that will exist between this world and the next? I'm not sure. But there will be continuity. Just as the, the old, worn out, mutilated body of Jesus was actually caught up and incorporated into his new resurrection body. God's saying, hey, I'm going to do the same thing with all of creation. It's not going to be tossed out or burned or thrown aside, but it will be caught up, at last liberated from its bondage to decay and death. And a new world will arise that has something to do with this one. In fact, Martin Luther supposedly said, 
If I knew the world would end tomorrow, I would plant a tree. And it's similar to this Jewish saying, which says, if you have a sapling in your hand and they tell you that the Messiah has arrived, first plant the sapling, then go out to greet him. The end of all things is not a rupture with the present age. It is its fulfillment. And we may not see how all of our acts of justice and love and mercy will fit into God's new world. But God does. And so in faith, we chisel out stones in the rock quarry, knowing that when the labor of this life is done, we're, we're going to take that weird, odd-shaped rock that is you and your life and what you've done with Christ, and you're going to hand that over to God, and he's going to take all of those stones and incorporate them into, into a stunning cathedral. We just can't see it yet. You're saying, hey, I want you to chisel it this way. Just listen, follow, listen to my voice. This is what I'm asking you to do. And we'll see in the end the place that it had in God's new world all along. I mean, why stop genocide? Why challenge or dismantle systems that promote racism? here and abroad? Why take a stance against the enslaving debt that we hold over developing nations that drains wealth from their pockets to line our own? Why care if your clothes were made by slaves or free people? Why stand up to the sex industry which is currently abducting a million children a year to be used in that system? Why care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner? Why try to stop pollution or slow deforestation or, or go plant a tree? Our answer is that a new world is coming. Not a disembodied heavenly world, but this world remade. Where God will do in full what He is empowering us to foreshadow in part. And God calls us to live in the here and now in anticipation of that future age. And Jesus says, hey, come follow me and, and be filled with the Spirit and become new creation people who bring signs and signals of the kingdom to birth on earth as it is in heaven. And as people are freed from slavery and forests are replanted, and genocides come to a grinding halt. 
and marriages are salvaged and disabled kids learn how to read and how to walk and justice begins to flow like a river, it will point powerfully forward to the kingdom of God that will come in full at the end of the age. When Jesus returns and speaks over creation, I am making everything new. And in the meantime, we are to live in anticipation of that. And the work that you do in the Lord is not in vain. So first, if you're taking notes, the resurrection should shape the way we view justice or setting the world right again. And second, perhaps less obvious, is that I'm going to argue that the resurrection should shape the way we view beauty. Now, Justice has always been a command from God to his people. Beauty, as far as I can tell, is not. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that beautiful things are, are, are the, the, the ripest for idolatry. That, that we can get wrapped around the axle when it comes to beauty. But you'll notice that in the beginning, God created us as creatures commissioned to bring forth both justice and beauty. And in light of the resurrection and our future hope, I think there's a sense in which we are recommissioned to do both. As a resurrection community who is anticipating the renewal of all things, I think we're called to bring beauty into the world. If the world is really going to be completely renewed and restored, and our lives are to serve as signposts pointing forward to that future place, then certainly we should create art and create beauty in a way that is reflective of that future reality. And it might manifest itself in a, in a thousand different ways. Whether that's art or architecture or music or, I would argue, really good food. But I think we should be some of the most poetic, hopeful, creative, inspired people on the planet who are constantly dragging the future into the present. Who don't withdraw and say, oh well, it's all going to burn. Who cares? But rather, we should be the people who look out onto our world and say, what is all of this going to look like when it's redeemed? Gray and ugly and cold and harsh and hopeless? Probably not. Okay, let's work on that. 
If you've ever seen the popular show Fixer Upper, which I have, all five seasons, then you know that Chip and Joanna Gaines go into a house that sometimes looks like it's been mutilated. And in a real sense, they resurrect the house. They keep portions of the old and, and they, they incorporate it into something brand new. They do to the house what God is going to do to the cosmos. And to my knowledge, they're actually passionate followers of Jesus. And I have no idea how much like, resurrection theology plays into you know, the, what they're doing in the homes and, and how much that plays into their inspiration. But I know that it's inspired. Okay? I mean, they make beautiful homes that, that, are, that are works of art and they're energizing and they're beautiful and, and they're, they're filled with hope. And you watch the show and you're thinking like, guys, come to my house. You know, like my house needs to be resurrected or whatever. <laughs> I need you because what they do is just breathtaking. Their art and design it's inspired and it's hopeful. It's almost like each house is this little signpost pointing forward to, to the renewal of all things. This little foretaste of the place that we are anticipating where everything will be restored and redeemed. And the owners come in the front door and they're like, oh my gosh, this is my house. And they're like crying and then you're watching the show and you're, if you're me, you're crying because they're crying and and you're like, no, it really is. It's your house. It's just new. And like, it, it's, it, it's this beautiful, it's just, it's just recreated. It's, it's resurrected. It, it's given new life in a way that's beautiful and inspired. Or at least my wife thinks so. Hence, all five seasons. But we are called to do creative, life-giving, hope-filled stuff. I mean, if resurrection is coming, if the new heavens and the new earth is on the horizon, it, it, if there is some level of continuity between this world and the next, then the mission of God has to be way bigger than saving souls for eternity. All of a sudden, beauty and creativity and recreation take on significance in the present. Christian artists, in my opinion, should be the most inspired in the world because they are committed not just to describing the world as it ought to be or describing the world as it is, but describing the world as it one day will be when Jesus returns. When art comes to terms both with the wounds of the world and the promise of resurrection and learns to express and respond both at the same time, we will be on our way to a fresh vision a fresh mission. 
and I do not have an artistic bone in my body, but many of you do. Some of you paint. Some of you write poetry. Some of you have albums on iTunes. Some of you build and restore and remodel stuff. And I want you to think deeply about where your creative activity sits in the tension between creation and recreation. How does it capture, how does it speak into both of those realities? Art produced by the resurrection community is perhaps uniquely suited among all art on the planet to celebrate the beauty of this world and the beauty of the one that is to come without slipping into idolatry on the one hand, which is worshiping the beauty as God, or slipping into hopelessness and cynicism on the other, which says all the world's too far gone, it's hopeless, even our art should be grotesque. The resurrection community should produce art that, that sits in that balance, that's, that's beautiful, that's hopeful. And, and striking this balance, it, it's going to, expressing this hope through creative activity is going to take serious imagination on your parts. It, it's going to take imagination fueled by reflection and meditation at the foot of the cross and, and at the empty tomb and, and of the future that is to come, that you might discern the mysteries of God's judgment against everything that is evil and God's affirmation of everything, even the created things that are good and will be redeemed in his kingdom. N.T. Wright, to quote him one more time, says it this way. We'll end with this. He says, Art at its best will draw attention not only to the way things are, but also to the way things will be. When the earth is filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea, that remains a surprising hope for our world. And perhaps it will be the artists who are best at conveying both the hope and the surprise. In short, we are called to partner with God in the renewal of all things, in present anticipation of the future reality that is to come, to set up symbols and signposts through our art, through beauty, through restoration, through acts of justice and setting things right, through, through our simple conversations in which we relay the most beautiful and important truths in the universe, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. And this gospel, this good news that we carry into the world, is not simply a message about saving souls for heaven, though some version of that is certainly true and important. As beautiful as that is, the gospel is actually better than that. Our gospel 
is good news for the trees. Our gospel is good news for the birds. Our gospel is good news for the Pacific Ocean. It's good news for art and music. It's good news for food. It's good news for physical reality. Jesus' parting words to his disciples post-resurrection was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to what? All creation. Why? Because the gospel is good news for all of creation. For the spiritual forces of darkness, for the very sources of evil and injustice in our world, for those who have rejected Jesus and remain determined to do so, the gospel is really bad news. Evil will be done away with. All their work will be undone. And their time is almost up. But for everything and for everyone else, the gospel is really good news. A new king has been crowned. A new kingdom is coming. Resurrection is on the horizon. And the work you do in the Lord is not in vain. As the alarm goes off tomorrow morning, another Monday, another cup of instant coffee. You can admit it. Another day in the cubicle. Another day listening to your coworker talk about her cats. I want you to remember your future hope. And remember that the work you do in the Lord is not in vain. As you look out on a world full of injustice and oppression, a world full of apathy and self-centeredness and idolatry, a world where too many relationships with God and others and self and creation lie broken and shattered, a world that often appears on the surface to be cold and dark and indifferent and wounded and even hopeless, I want you to remember where your hope comes from. And to know that one day this world will be resurrected and you along with it. And that in the meantime, Jesus is just getting started with this reality. That is our future hope. And life should be different because of it. Let's pray.